Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you and your family and your friends are all healthy and safe and well in these strange days. On this week's episode of the podcast, I'm going to once again repost one of the recent data at Urban Digital Discussions, this time the one that I had with Manuel Lima. Uh, Manuel, as you may know, is the author of Book of Circles, The Book of Trees, the book and website, Visual Complexity. He is a creator, he is a speaker, he's an author. And we had a really good time chatting with one another and taking questions from people who attended uh, that live video chat. So I'm not gonna talk about anything else and I'm just gonna get right to the episode. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode of the Policy Viz podcast with Manuel Lima. Hi everybody. Uh, I'm John Schwabish from Urban Institute. Uh, thanks for coming in uh, to this digital discussion chat. Uh, good to see everybody. And I see a bunch of people who've been here uh, for the last few days, which is great to see people coming back. So um, yeah, love it. Um, so I'll just set up the uh, parameters of the chat. So as you can see on your screen, Manuel Lima is here to talk to us uh, about all of his awesome work. Um, so this is going to be great. If you have questions, just put them in the chat window and I'll try to make a bit of a cue and then, uh, you know, you can just unmute yourself when it's your turn and you can ask Manuel your questions. There's no need for me to have to read them unless you don't want to unmute yourself. That's totally fine too. And that's it. It's pretty low key. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of polish to this. So just a chance for all of us to connect and have some conversation, maybe with some adults for an hour, um, and let the kids go have some screen time or whatever. Um, so yeah. All right, Manuel, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks. You're doing great. Uh, thanks everyone for thanks everyone for joining and thanks John for hosting me. This is yeah. This is a great initiative for sure. Uh, well, I'm glad you could come on. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna show the, you have other books. So this is the newest one, right? Is that right? Or no, it it's the second. The newest is the circles, actually. The newest is circles. Okay, so here's trees. So here's the book of trees. And here's the book of circles. So we can talk about circles and maybe pie charts and you can, um, we can argue about that. Um, these are both beautiful books. So I thought maybe we would start, you could just start by telling people about yourself. Again, it's whatever. <laughs> but I mean, what I, as we were talking about before we kind of started, what I love about both of these books is they feel, especially the, the, the physical version, it's super tactile. It has a great feel to it, the print, the color. Uh, so maybe, I don't know if you want to talk about the process of, of creating these books and, and in your, in your process, cause there's, it's all historical. So what is your yeah. process like to go through and, you know, research all this material? And then uh, maybe we can just, after that, we can, we can segue into what you're doing now and, and then people can sort of post their questions. We just take it like that. That sounds, that sounds great. Great. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah. So um, you mentioned the quality of the books, right? Um, that's something that I also feel very proud of, of, of uh, achieving in many ways with these books. Uh, and I think really the credit goes to Princeton Architecture Press, the publisher. Uh, they really invest a lot of time in making the, you know, great books, high quality paper, you know, high quality printing, colors. They really strive to do high quality work. Um, and I think it's really at a time where we have a lot of really cheap, cheap books that are just really low quality and I hate to actually consume those books. I would rather have a PDF. In those cases, I think it, it hurts everyone, <laughs> right? It's not a great experience. It, it, it kills more, more trees along the way. And it's just, just a, a really like, uh, yeah, suboptimal experience for sure. So 
yeah huge proponent of like high quality books and i think it's actually one of the qual one of the the types of books are actually going up in terms of of, of numbers uh because people that care about books care about high quality right in the end right of right so so yeah people that are new to my work i would say maybe read my books in reverse order which is starting with the latest mm. <laughs> right and then navigating all the way to my first which is visual complexity and i say this because like when I started Visual Complexity, uh, and this Visual Complexity, for those who haven't, uh, who haven't seen the book, it's really all about network visualization, right? And it tries to understand this new sort of phenomenon of, of obsession for networks and visualizing uh, really complex, intricate structures. So as I was doing the book, right, even the first chapter of that book is called The Tree of Life. And that was me trying to go back in time to understand the origin, right? The genesis of interest from humans to visualize these intricate structures, which mm -hmm. take, took me back to the tree diagram, right? And then I knew when I was actually doing visual complexity that the tree diagram, as I was uncovering all these illustrations, all this medieval work and so on, I realized that this was too good to be just a single chapter, right? So yeah. at some point, making a whole book dedicated to the tree diagram had to happen. I, I knew it in, in, my, in my mind, it had to happen. So that was my second book, The Book of Trees, which really covers almost 800 years of, of human exploration of mapping hierarchies in the shape of a tree. And there's multiple cases there, multiple types and typologies for, for tree diagrams. And then I think following the same sort of mental exercise, I'm a little bit of obsessed about the origin of things. I wanted to go even further back, right? Yeah, and I wanted mm -hmm. to go even further back. That's a great, it's like almost slides, right? Uh, <laughs> I wanted to go even further back, right? To like, who were the, actually the first time that humans were thinking about visualizing information, right? Mm -hmm. And it took me to, to circles, like some of the most primitive, it took me actually back roughly 40,000 years back in time mm -hmm. to the first petagriffs, you know, rock carvings that people were making really around the world. Uh, and many of them were circular in nature. Some of the most ancient archetypes of, of data visualization is the spiral, the concentric rings, and the section circle, which is the reason for why pie charts could possibly be so popular still today. Um, right. so, so that was fascinating to me. And as I was discovering a lot of these old material, I became more interested in the old material than the new, I, I, I have to say. And I think part of that is, is, well, twofold. One is that we are very present oriented. You know, we might think that we are in the pinnacle of civilization and everything we're doing, data visualization related or else, or, 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 or in a different subject is very new and it has never been done before, right? So I think I, I was trying to demystify that, that sort of take that everything we are doing is very new, which is, it was, and I discovered so many cases where what we're doing today is still just variants of, of what has been done in the past. So that was one thing. I was really becoming, in, you know, falling in love with a lot of this old material. And then at the, the, other the other reason for me to do some of these books was also to preserve some of the stuff that we were doing, uh, you know, even still today. Mm -hmm. And one of the concepts that was frightening to me, and I discovered this 10 years ago when I was working on, on the visual complexity book, is that notion of the digital dark ages, which is this idea that, you know, many, you know, maybe a generation or two from now, 
we're going to be able to look back at the current time and not being able to see, read, or decode a lot of the artifacts, the cultural artifacts we're producing. And that, mm -hmm. for me, is a super scaring uh, outcome, right? right? I mean, it's yeah. almost like, uh, again, like this is a very, and it's not even hard to imagine, it's already happening. Like we already, there's this article on, I think, BBC the other day, on researchers trying to understand the work of a physicist, a UK physicist, right? And having to go back into all drives that he had, and they couldn't, they, they don't have the technology to read that stuff done in the 80s, right? And this is just like right. 30 years yeah. ago or something. So <laughs> it's really frightening. So imagine like the same process of all the amazing stuff we're creating today, not being able to, to be read or just uh, consumed by future generations. That's a really scary thought for me. Right. So if anything, some of these books, especially one of the modern examples, are also a way to preserve them for, for posterity, right? For that, for those future generations in some ways. Can I ask, um, for people who are, so I would guess there, there's a few different types of people who read um, your books. There's people who are just fascinated with historical data visualization and how it, how it has changed and evolved over time. Um, there's people who are just interested in history in general, uh, people who are interested in design and the origins of design. And there's probably another camp of people who are data visualization practitioners mm -hmm. um, working in the modern tools. And I wonder what you would say to someone like that who, you know, they don't really have a necessarily an interest in, in the origins of design or data viz. What would you say to someone who, who's a practitioner and says, how could I use this book in my current work? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's a great question. Um, and yes, to your point, uh, I think that's what appeals to me is that I, I you know, since I can remember, I, I always hated to be part of one single label or one, being, being in one single box, right? I like multiculturality. I like, you know, just very sort of expensive ways of thinking. And, and visual complexity from the beginning has been that. I've always been fascinated by the amount of people and the different backgrounds of people reaching out to me from, you know, architects to biologists to, to artists to, I mean, the full gamut of almost roles. And, and I think the books touch that, you know, even some of the media covering the books yeah. is not just about data visualization. It's, it's, it's tech media, it's, it's art, it's design, it's, it's science. You know, I had like nature and science talking about the book. So it's a book that really touches a full gamut of, of professions. Which, and I think that's actually part of the goal, really. Uh, because I think that's the true nature of some of the stuff that is portrayed in the book. It has that sort of broad appeal. Uh, and I, I really yeah. uh, like that aspect of it. Now, to the data visualization community specifically, you can learn a few things. Like one, of, of course, you can be inspired by both you know, modern and ancient things, uh, sometimes even more inspired by the, the stuff they did in the old days, because a lot of that stuff was done you know, by hand, right? And it's yeah. incredible. I always give this example of, of the Volval, this like medieval technique that they had, to, you know, that expanded you know, hundreds of years ago. And it was basically discs of paper that you could spin uh, independently. And this was really sim similar to analog computers. They, they were actually able to create millions of combinations using a very, very simple process of just paper discs with end annotations. You know, fantastic stuff. The kind of thing that really it really portrays human ingenuity in a whole different way i feel especially right. those those old ones so i think for the visualization people i think being inspired by again both modern and, and ancient examples but then also understanding the logic behind some of these things right so 
one of the things I think I talk in visual complexity is the notion of Ars Memorativa, which happens in the Iron Middle Ages. And this was when people were being literally inundated by new information. There's, there's a great book called Too Much to Know. And it, it basically, it's an entire book uh, telling portraits or stories of people in the, that moment in time. This is roughly 700 years ago or 600 years ago, being inundated by new data. Like there was a huge growth of book production. There was all this uh, information coming from the ancient world, ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And people had to make sense of it, of, of it all, right? This was like, they were facing big data as we know it today, right? Yeah. Just in yeah. a different time. Um, and graphic depiction, right? Visual data visualization was a huge factor in it. And Ars Memorativa was an attempt to decode the main principles for portraying information in a graphical way that would allow the user to actually memorize at a later stage. So this is really the genesis of information design. So a lot of the principles we still use today were actually created in medieval times. So for any kind of schooler or person that's interested in, in, in data visualization principles, and I'm, I'm definitely obsessed with principles. I think it's a great way of, of looking at a practice. It's through the main guidelines that it has. Right. Uh, I think it's, it's great to look back and, and see what, again, the genesis, what drove those principles in the first place, how they have evolved over time. And now, to a certain degree, many of them are still used today. Right. Do you, uh, I want to ask one more question about the books and then yeah. you can talk about what you're doing of now. Course. But do you have a, uh, you've mentioned already a few like these historical examples. Do you have a, a favorite from either the trees or the circles book? Do you have a, do you have a favorite like medieval yeah, I have actually, historical I have, example? I have it here. I think, well, it's so hard to get one favorite, but one of my favorites, it, it's super hard to have one. You know, it's, right. I think it's like when you do a book like this, you, you kind of, you know, you really fell in love with so many examples. And yeah. And even yesterday I was like talking to my daughter, Chloe. And of course, one of the, one of the positive things about everything that's going on in the world right now is that you get to spend well, positive and negative at times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a double -edged sword. But it's yeah. definitely spending more time with the kids and then talking to them in a way that you, you didn't have the time before. Right. So right. I was, I was showing her a lot of like these old tree diagrams and she's very much into drawing and all that. So this is actually one of my favorite examples. It's, like, it's actually a double page. It's a full spread uh -huh. of the book of trees. It's an example of an horizontal tree. Mm. What I love about this is that if you notice, the it's this is actually this is a tree of morality which is actually a very famous theme in medieval uh, europe it basically portrays the tree of virtues and the tree of vices and notice how mm. the designer in this case creates a lot of sort of uh, visual metaphors to indicate what's good on this side right notice mm. how the tree is 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 much more uh, rich there's like color everywhere the leaves are all fully green there's fruits coming out and this is the tree of vices, what you should not do, right? Um, and notice yeah. how some of the, the branches are actually kind of dying, losing color. And they played with all these visual metaphors to explain some really complex concepts back then. And yeah. again, these are things that were all done by hand. And again, just the, the, the amount of creativity that went into some of these things is, is pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you, you were also mentioning the process. I think the process yeah. for this, uh, I feel like I've completed my trilogy of, of books of this type. <laughs> and I think it's kind of like the worst type of books you can do in, in a way, because not only do you have to write a substantial amount and you have to do research on, on writing the right, the right things and, 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 do, and telling it in the right way. 
So there's a lot of writing and research there, but then the worst part arguably is actually getting the images themselves. And yeah. that's a really hugely time consuming process of, of going up with authors. You know, sometimes the authors don't, don't no longer exist. Um, you know, even modern examples are equally, if not even as hard to get, because again, the digital dark ages, a lot of these things done in the early 2000s are lost, literally right. lost. Like they lost the, the code, they, the plugin doesn't work anymore, they are unable to like reproduce it. Sometimes it's actually harder to get a modern example than a medieval mm -hmm. one created 500 years ago, right? Yeah. So then there's that. And then it's just like the, the whole process of, of, of actually writing, putting the research, making the images, the layout for the book, uh, getting, I remember getting, this is 10 years ago, visual complexity, yeah. getting the first manuscript back from the publisher with rad annotations all over the manuscript. I think I almost <laughs> cried that moment. I was like, I was naive to the point of thinking that, you know, when you end off the manuscript to the publisher, You're it's done. pretty much done. It's like, hey, my job is done. I wash my hands. So I can relax, go to beach somewhere. And that was just the beginning of the process, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then all those phases just, I mean, of course, now I know about the process. I don't get right. as scared or depressed as I did right. you know, two years right. ago. But, but it is, you know, quite the time-consuming process, uh, for yeah. sure. But, but well, the so. other thing about, about these books, um, and again, I would maybe harder for the early ones, is that the, the quality of the images are all very, you know, they're all high-resolution images. Yeah. So, which which is I don't know. If, is it harder to get those the older? Is it easier or harder to get the older ones in a high res image than than the stuff? It's actually today? easier. I mean, to be so yeah. I mean, to, again, to be honest, like there's a lot of material still today that's probably hidden in dusty cabinets somewhere in museums right. and galleries elsewhere. So we only know what we know, right? And 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 but fortunately, things are changing, and a lot of these institutions are actually making a lot of their collections available online for people like myself i can be in a, in a cafe in brooklyn and consuming these old medieval manuscripts i don't actually have this is also something that i say for i think you know 20 years ago it would take a lot longer to do any of the books that i've done right in terms of like especially yeah. the historical ones because i would actually have to go physically yeah to a lot of these museums in europe and elsewhere in the u.s and actually bros I, I didn't even know i would how long it would take to do the book of circles for example if i had, if i wanted to do it like 30 years ago so it's, it's making it a lot easier and yes a lot of these examples are in iras now it's surprising like let's say that i want an, an example and this happened in visual complexity a lot an early example of a network visualization done in 19, 1996 the resolution mm -hmm. of those images were so bad back then right yeah. in 96 you were talking about like 400 pixels by 400 pixels or something like that so you couldn't do that in a book. You couldn't reproduce it. And then again, like a lot of the code was done. Like the, the author was like, hey, I would love to help you, but I don't think I can. Like, uh, there's no way, right? Uh, or it just would yeah. take so much time for them to do it that it's just not worth it. So I ended up not including a lot of these examples, modern examples because of that, for that reason. Uh, the, the, yeah. the only impediment yeah. for all the ones sometimes is the money because a lot of these institutions ask for a considerable amount yeah. And I don't have that amount to pay for every single image. No, I know. So I had to pick and choose. I had to pick and choose a few ones that I actually ended up paying a, a good amount. Uh, you, yeah. So you have to pick and choose. I think, you know, the Library of France, for example, the National Library of France has amazing, beautiful illustrations, but they tend to charge a considerable amount. So I, I, yeah. I, I picked a few, but not many. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm finishing uh, another book right now. And it's like the Washington Post and the New York Times, like they want, you know, a lot of money. So, oh yeah, and I won't say how much, but it's a lot of money. It's a lot of and money, so yeah. then, then you talk to, you know, more local newspapers. Like I have a few from the Texas Tribune who they do great work and, and they're more willing to negotiate, you know, to say, you know, they want this amount. It's like, well, I have to pay for this out of pocket. Would you be willing to do this? And so, I, you know, it's great. <laughs> when they negotiate, but when you get to the big organizations, they have a whole company that does it for them. So um, you're totally right. And then I think people also don't understand, like, and and I got regrets like this, like, Hey, why didn't you make this illustration like larger? And then the price is also uh, an outcome of that, right? It matters like the the size matters where it's going to go. It all has a price. So if you want like a full page, like, especially in the cover you would have to pay a lot of money yeah so yeah it matters yeah it matters tremendously for sure um you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on now and then um i'll just remind people if they have questions just put them in the chat box in the chat window and then uh you can ask directly but maybe you talk about a little bit what you're working on now and then we'll see if folks yeah absolutely for sure so all right so i've been at google now for i think four and a half years Mm. uh and what's been interesting for me at google is that I think finally I was able to match or marry the two sort of separate lives that I had uh, up to now. So all the research that you saw, the books that we just talked about and you know, talks and teaching on data visualization, this has already been done on the side, right? It hasn't really paid the bills substantially, which is another sort of thing that people that want to venture into this world of publishing should know. <laughs> it doesn't pay that well. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're doing it for the money, you're not, you're not going to go far. Yeah, yeah you are fooling yourself, yeah. <laughs> so, but apart from that, so yeah, so I, I had to pay the bills, right? And especially now with two kids. So over the last 15 years, I kind of, I feel like I've led like, Two parallel lives you know on nine to five i was working for as a ux designer ux lead manager in places like microsoft and startups and nokia back in the day and and now google uh and of course on the side i was doing all of that researching teaching all that stuff on on data visualization but interestingly enough i think now at google i was able to marry the two things and now i'm leading a team of a data visualization team building uh, a library a component library of charts for all of Google, really focused mm-hmm. on cloud, but also we have we have internal clients across the company, which is really fun. And I think that's also the, the kind of way that I like to approach data visualization is being as horizontal as sort of again, pluralistic as possible, multidisciplinary, right? So right. we are, so my team is, is really a lot of roles from designers to UX engineers, to researchers, and we are also focusing on some more sophisticated types of visualization components, you know, things like a network topology or flow diagrams or complex, you know, timelines of, of that nature, not your typical bar chart or line chart. Yeah. And there's a growing appetite for that, both internally, right, across different tools that we have at the company, but even externally as well, especially on clouds. And some of the cloud products are already uh, importing and using and adopting our, our components. So that's kind of like what I've been doing. And, and again, it, it feels good because I think for the first time I'm able to, to uh, again, combine and unify these two passions that I had. And then on the side, I'm also thinking about a fourth book. This is not gonna be the book of triangles though. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got that. I got that a lot from friends and my wife. Like, what is the next book? The Triangles book? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the squares. Yeah. Wise guy. Yeah. Real funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the book of squares. That would be quite yeah. the book. Yeah, that's uh, right. yeah. No, I, I think I ended up this, this trilogy of, 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 of books of that nature. So I'm thinking about doing another one. And there's going to be an, probably an announcement of, of that sort. It's more geared towards a design community this time around. And it's not going to be as visual. But I think it's going to be exciting. I'm definitely excited about that book specifically. And then I'm also interested, especially at the time where we are now, in kind of doing something like you are doing, John. I think people being kind of you know, at home in these really tough times, I think if anything else, it's a great opportunity for us to invest in ourselves mm-hmm. rather than expand our mind a little bit, talk to other people and educate ourselves and, and, and expand our mind in, in, in other yeah. ways, right? So I just started a, a series of, of uh, free webinars. Uh, I'm using Crowdcast, which is really a cool platform. I, I've been doing a lot of research on what's the, the right webinar tools to use and whatnot. I give, I tried a couple of others, but I think Crowdcast is a really cool one because you can follow people there. It's kind of like there's this social dynamics in yeah. the, into Crowdcast. So I'm pretty yeah. excited about that. And I announced this last week, about the same time that you announced this talk. I announced yeah. the, the free webinars. And you know, these are three webinars. There's, it's going to be called The Evolution of DataViz, The Language of DataViz, and The Principles of DataViz. And all three webinars, 100 people each filled, filled up in like two hours. Wow. Uh, which is to say, I think it, I was really kind of blown away by the demand and interest. And, yeah. and I think there's really a lot of appetite both for the subject and also, of course, as a result of people, a lot of people being at home right now. But I'm really excited about that. I, I think, you know, looking back, doing some introspection on the things that excite me and you kind of do that when you turn 40. I think there's a little bit, a little bit of a middle, middle age, <laughs> middle age crisis, crisis <laughs> that going on. It's like, hey, what do I really, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Right, and, right. And, yeah. and for me, for me, it's really about, you know, communicating my knowledge and and you know and inspiring other people. You know, and the book is really the books are a reflection of that passion that I have for for knowledge. Right. So I think doing that through webinars. Is really fun. Like, what are you doing right now? And and I like webinars more than just being a static video that you do online because we have interaction. Like, hopefully, we're gonna start that in two minutes or so. You can actually have people asking questions and interacting with others. And I think it's it's still not quite the same as as a physical type of of, of experience or a seminar or talk, but it's right. almost the same, right? At least there's more yeah. interactivity between. And the fact that anyone can join across the world is, for me, super empowering as well. Like, yeah. You know, if you were to do this in, let's say, New York tomorrow, you would be really conditioning people by the money that they would need to spend, you know, to travel mm-hmm. to New York, to stay in a hotel, to go to this conference. And not a lot of people can afford, but doing this, now you have people all around the world. You know, the webinars, I was looking at the, the data, it's, it, I have people from all the way from, from India, China, different regions of Asia, Europe, US. It's it's really like the pluralistic effort. And and I love that. I really do love that. Yeah. Well it also and, and I mean not not for these, but for other webinars where you do them for an organization, the advantage is, you know, maybe only they can only have twenty or whatever number of people attend the webinar at that time. And if you say, well, just record them, then they have their own library where they can, you know, other people in the organization can go back and you know, hopefully learn from it. It's, it's different because you're more like watching a video as opposed to having an interaction. Um, 
but it's it is I, I think it's it's certainly a, a challenge and we've been we've been having conversations like these for some of these discussions with with people you know last couple of weeks um there's obviously a different sort of like technologies that you need with microphones and headphones and all that but it's mm -hmm. And I think we all know, like, it's really easy to put that video, the webinar window, like minimize and check your email. So I think it's, it, there's, um, there's maybe a strategy, a different kind of strategy when you're, when you're teaching in a webinar than, than when you're, you know, live in front of an audience. Um, well, we can, we can keep talking, but let me, let me just pause and see if anyone has any questions. Um, because there's, you know, this is this is intended to be a, a discussion. So there are no questions in the window now. But um, does anyone have any questions for for Manuel and on the books, current work? You know how he's faring in Brooklyn with two kids. <laughs> <laughs> Either uh, folks are sleeping or they're they're too shy right now. So um, we can just we can just keep talking. Um, so I'm curious about the the Google work. I don't know how much you can talk about it. So you know whatever mm -hmm. you're allowed to talk about. But so you're building is is it building a library of graphic types for people at Google to um, use as a as a reference library? Is that is that essentially what or not essentially? Yeah, but is so that, that the, yeah, so the goal? It's it, it's kind of twofold, right? I mean, one is that we we have created this what we call internally the SPAC which is basically a set of, of specifications or guidelines on how to use charts. And that has been widely sort of used internally as, as again, as a list of guidelines or best practices on how to use charts, covering then many types of charts and, 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 and applications. And then of course, the other thing we're doing is we are creating a, a component library, like a UI component library that people can mm -hmm. just plug and play our components into their own products and use uh, I gotcha. Right? And of course, the plug and play is, doesn't quite happen that in that way. There's all, always a lot of end holding and customization that's needed. And actually, one of the, the toughest challenges for us to understand is where do we draw the line between you know, doing a, a general charting library for, for different teams and knowing where, you know, when we can actually you know, spend a lot of time customizing them for for that, for the specific needs of, of, a, of an internal client or partner team, right? Yeah. But then a lot of these charts will be visible in internal products that never see the light of day by anyone externally, but also mm -hmm. some of them will be in, you know, many cloud products, for example, that will eventually uh, be seen by, by enterprises and companies and, and users elsewhere outside of the company. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Um, there was a quick question for you that the webinar, I put the Crowdcast webinar link in the oh, chat cool. box and it looks like it's full. Um, yeah. and so Bridget wants to know what, you know, going to be more in the future, recording them, uh, you know. Yeah, there will be more in the future. Uh, again, like I was, I was Bridget, I was, uh, I was surprised by, by the, by the interest. I, I, I think I put it on Twitter and again, it took me full hour, two hours to just the whole thing to be filled and these are you know 100 people each per webinar um right. so it was more than i was expecting i i have kind of like a 100 120 people limit and this is more like a technical limit i i kind of realized that after 100 and something people the connection doesn't work so well and you start kind of having issues and it also as you know uh, i have issues with the plan that i have uh, so i would have to pay a lot more for the stability that comes with having more than 100 people so I'm definitely planning on having on doing more of those. Uh, again, I was not cool. expecting this type of demand, 
And I think people, which is great, it's great to know that people are both interested in this topic and and probably like you know as as they are today, you know, locked at home, they are even more eager to do something that yeah. takes them away from home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm definitely planning on doing uh, another series soon. So have you, uh, the one thing that I've been thinking about with these is how is, is, uh, picking a time. So like I've, I've picked noon seems to work or right around noon seems to work because you hit the West coast folks, you know, they're three hour behind you, you and I were yeah. East coast time. And then, you know, I think the UK is now like four or five hours ahead and Germany six hours ahead. So you kind of get that, but then you miss, you know, the rest of the world. So I haven't really figured out like the best way to pick the time each of this. Have you, have you thought about, thought about that? And like, are you trying to pick a consistent time or just say, well, just do kind of random time so that I try to get as many people as I can. I, I'm actually doing, yeah, I thought about that. And, and I, I was kind of doing some research on what would be the right time. I, I think 11 a.m. Eastern time, as we are doing today, and yeah. I'm going to do the, that exact same time tomorrow. Uh, I think right. it's, it's arguably one of the best because, like you're yeah. saying, we get still, it's a bit early for, for the West Coast, but, you know, it's manageable. And it's, it covers a lot of people in Europe. Some places in Asia, it's already a bit late, but... You know, even the other day, I think I was, I was pinging, someone was pinging me to make sure that the time, so it's 11 a.m. Eastern, but then for them, I think they are somewhere in India, it's going to be 11 p.m. exactly 12 hours later. <laughs> right. So it's, which is a little bit late, right? <laughs> Granted. Yeah. Uh, but it's hot. Yeah. I, I don't think there's like a specific no. time. I think 11 Eastern yeah. might be. That's what I was thinking, 11 or 12. I mean, also for the West Coast folks, it's 8 a.m., but people don't have to commute now. So... Yeah, you can sort of show up without being ready for work, you know, because you don't necessarily have to show your screen. So, so uh, uh, Zainab, and excuse me if I uh, pronounced your name wrong, but but he's in Pakistan, says it's nine o'clock there. So, okay. you know, maybe that's as far as we can kind of go at this 11, <laughs> 11 o'clock at nine o'clock. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, but there is a question about uh, tools and resources uh, that you would suggest for someone who's uh, getting started in, in DataViz. I don't know if you have, you know, specific tools or things that you would, you would recommend, but. Oh, I mean, tools. Uh, what was the question? Oh, if you have tools and. And resources. And resources. Ah, there's, the, the field keeps changing. I mean, actually, I was putting together a few slides for my, this webinar tomorrow. And I keep mentioning the the profusion of tools that exist now on data visualization yeah. is just incredible. Like I, when I joined the community, you know, it, it was still a very sort of academic practice. This was like 15, 16 years ago. You would have to actually know a lot of, of coding, programming languages to actually make any substantial effort in this, in this, in this area. And you probably recall that, John, like it was just not as, as it is today at all. So I think it, it's for the best, but now it's hard to keep track of how many tools exist. It is, if, yeah. if whoever asked that question, I can actually send them a link of, of resources. I keep track of some of the resources. Um, I think visualizing data actually as yeah. a good page. I'm just going to put that in here, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good page. I think it's just basically um, for all types of, of data visualization related tools. It's so hard to keep track. It's like in the hundreds, right? And, and I think yeah. it's hard to pick one because it really depends on what you need, right? So um, in terms of like what you're trying to achieve, uh, what is your fluency with, with programming languages, it kind of, there's a full gamut, there's a full range, you know, from, from being a completely novice or design art oriented person to being like really familiar with code. 
and that would change the, the number of just suggested tools change depending on that. So that's a really good page to start off. And then books is yeah. the same thing. Like so many books have come out. I think you know, maybe the angle of my of some of my books are more historical, sort of background, visual culture. Uh, if you want to go more into like the deep deep on like the how-to books, there's a bunch of others. I think even visualizing data also has a, another link on, on books as well. But if you search, if that yeah, if, if that person sends me a link, I, I will ping them to my. I keep a page on Notion that's public mm -hmm. for people to that you know have this, this type of questions on resources. I can just ping them. Great, that's great. So um, yeah, so so ping Manuel at, uh, on Twitter. Twitter, okay? Like yeah, spot? okay. That'd be great. Um, so there's a few other questions here, and I'll just let people just um, uh, unmute themselves. So we'll start with uh, Adida, and again, excuse me if I'm pronouncing names wrong. So if you want to uh, unmute yourself and just uh, ask Manuel yourself, um, we can just start there, and we can start, start sort of start a list. So. Cool, thank you. Hi, Manuel. Cheers from Germany. Uh, I totally feel um, your need of collecting um, historical examples of and getting into a crazy um, walk through the centuries to see how much data visualization is actually in our genes. Um, I myself am a cartographer and I'm facing now the challenge of trying to organize those wonderful historical examples of storytelling maps. And I was wondering, do you have some sort of a peer-to-peer -peer tip? How do you organize your collections of graphics, of trees, network circles, and so on and so on? That would be great. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Well, thank you. It's, it's always great to, to meet a kindred spirit. So, so thanks for that. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot more taxonomies, especially of these old material, are needed, right? And I think we need more people like you to investigate that. So, so I really appreciate what you're doing. In the, so the tools that I used, it was, it was hard. I think it was a mix. So I, I can also send you the list of institutions. And many of them not only have like illustrations. And, and I actually thought about doing a blog post at some point, uh, which basically is, again, that list. The list of institutions are making their collections uh, open and, and freely available for researchers like, like yourself and, and myself to use and browse, right? So I think that's uh, something I'm probably gonna do at some point and share with, with the world and, and the community. But that's a good question. So there's a bunch of institutions and I'm happy to like recommend you a, a few. Uh, the Library of Congress is always the easiest in the sense that it's public record, it's in the public domain. So anything that's there, it's safe to use. There's a many more in, in Europe, uh, of course, institutions, especially tied with universities. There's a bunch, I can send you that list, list if, you want, if, you, if you are interested. In the process of itself that I used, I actually used Pinterest, believe it or not. Mm. I used Pinterest to make sense of some of these images I was uncovering and to discover the patterns, right? The themes that I was uncovering. Because sometimes a lot of the themes, and this is you know me looking back at. Let me just show you here for a moment. So if if you haven't seen one of my books, they always start. All three of them start with a taxonomy in the very, you know, first pages. This is the taxonomy of the Book of Circles, right? Uh, and this taxonomy is really hard. This taxonomy doesn't is not in my mind when I submit the, the book proposal at all, right? It's, it's a taxonomy that, is, that emerges through the researcher, through the research that I'm doing, right? Collecting all these examples, trying to put them in groups and categories. 
And the taxonomy kind of emerges naturally through that process. And for that process, I use Pinterest a lot to actually start making sense of similarities, resemblances between some of the, the motifs and some of the, the styles that people were using. And then uh, I also use uh, Illustrator, uh, Adobe Illustrator, just, you know, just an application that allows you to draw, but I would be basically collecting all these images and putting them in a really massive digital whiteboard of sorts, right? And again, grouping them in, in ways that made sense. And then the great thing about doing a taxonomy like that for the book, and again, I'm just gonna show it again, is that it is both the taxonomy of, of all the types, in this case are the, the seven families of 21 typologies of circular diagrams, right? But it also is a way for you to, it's also a table of contents, right? It also has a link to the number where each category starts. So you can jump into a specific category in the book, right? So that's why I think, you know, taxonomies are, are really important, not just from a research contribution, but also if, even in a book like that, it allows you to actually understand the, the whole practice through, through it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So Francesca has a question slash comment for you. So, um, which I think is a really good one about, um, about talking the data viz language and reading the viz language. So, okay, there she is, yeah. Hello, hi, Manuela, everybody. Hi, um, hi. Yeah, so I use, a, thank you. I, I mean, I use your book in, um, uh, at school quite, uh, quite widely. I teach uh, some data visualization uh, design curriculum from a very graphic uh, point of view. So they're a very, very uh, useful instrument. And uh, uh, I want to share a comment with, with everybody, which is like we, we say in, in classroom that uh, you can learn how to create data visualization, but then you, you also need to learn how to read data visualization. And, and because it's a language, like the capacity of, of talking and listening need to be developed like along one another otherwise like you're not really talking to anybody right so um mm -hmm. i'm i i appreciate the books because i think that they they slow down the process and they really requires i mean you can also go through very quickly and just they are just like beautiful but if you want to understand them they slow down the process and they demand time for the understanding and the listening which is something that i feel digital tools doesn't requires so explicitly so if i think about even in the last several weeks all of the news feed are absolutely bombed by so many visualization kinds so many charts so many things and lines that grows and decrease and i'm not sure what is the what normal people ordinary people really understand out of that because i'm not sure they have the instrument to actually receive so much information packed and processed in such a, a condensed language. So, uh, well, this is the comment. If I can have a question, is more like, how do you think about uh, the capacity of, of, of people of reading visualization nowadays? So how much the fast piece of the production of this, the visualization gets along with, the, with the, the, the speed of people to being able to to reading them and what we can do as designers or educators or or just people that is like visual communicator to help this capacity of, of reading to 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 increase you know to make to make these people these tools really useful for the people that receive them that's that's great i mean i i love your 
your connection with language and 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 then maybe not coincidentally my my webinar next week which I, again i hope to do it again and hopefully when i do the, the second series you can join uh, that one francesca is is called the language of data visualization and i kind of start the webinar by this this hypothetical scenario that you know tomorrow you're going to face an alien right that comes and, and comes to earth and asks you what a cat is right the animal and then you try to explain by using a series of descriptors you know it's um, it's it's wild it's it's uh, it's this or that you can try to explain a predator you try to explain what a cat is now the understanding of those descriptors would only make sense for the alien if he understands two things the building blocks of that language right of that alphabet so the ladders that you actually apply which by the way are just one single alphabet or i think more than 200 known alphabets today live uh living alphabets that we have on planet earth uh, would only make sense if that if that alien knows what those building blocks are the letters of that those words and the grammar the rules on how to combine that right without those two things it would be meaningless to explain and it's the same thing with graphics graphics only makes sense if people understand the building blocks of of those graphics right mostly conveyed through shapes colors size uh, position right things of that nature the visual variables and the rules on how to combine them the grammar of graphics right it's the same process and i go through that the webinar like what does that mean the visual decoding how the, the various nuances of that grammar and and there's but again answering that it's all it has to be through education and and i think one of the great things that for example john has done which i love it's it's called the graphic continuum and i'm, I'm sure you can also you should post here as well it's one of many examples and i think there's a few other frameworks but that specific that one specifically we actually have the poster version john i, I should have mentioned this in the beginning we have the poster version at Google and we have the little oh, the desktop version as well. And it's super useful because again, it allows you to understand uh, it's a connection between, you know, what type of data you have, what do you want to achieve with that data and the suggested chart. Right. And I think it's a really like, it's, it's a mental tool. It's a mental process and you have to like practice. There's a little bit of, of like language, right? Like I have my five-year-old Chloe here and she's just learning the, the language, the written language, right? The building blocks, the letters, and how to combine them. And you can see the brain adapting to this new knowledge, right? With graphic language, it's the same thing. And we cannot expect people to just get it and understand it. Because imagine how long it took you or any of us here to learn written language and to master it, right? To a point where we were really comfortable with it. It, took, it takes years, right? And now all of a sudden we are expecting that we can put in front of uh, in front of, of people some really complex charts and then just expect them that they would just understand it it doesn't happen that way right so i think it's our job especially your job francesca as well as as an educator to really teach this because the nuances of that language are really important for people to understand especially as as an example we are more and more relying on charts as we now see with of course the coronavirus epidemic and how it's 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 becoming uh, really ubiquitous the, the amount of charts also because we have a bias of accuracy when we actually see a chart we perceive that to be more accurate and it's 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 a bias as many biases that we have and and actually my one of my favorite uh, wikipedia pages is is the list of of cognitive biases it's a great page and if you are a designer or anyone dealing with data visualization you should go to that page because you really understand that's the genesis of a lot of of principles we used for 
communicating information and data, right? So one of them is that bias that exists. So if that bias is very prevalent across uh, populations, and if they're not educated, right, on how to reading and interpreting charts, it's a problem, right? There's a lot of possibility for misunderstanding and misinterpretation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was great. Great question. Great, great discussion. Um, Oksana has a question on learning code. I don't know if she wants to... Um... Uh, yeah, should designers UX graphic code in your opinion? It, again, it, it really depends on what you want to achieve, uh, uh, Oksana. Uh, it really does. Um, I, I don't think it's a, it's a need per se. You know, you can easily partner with someone else. I think, to be honest, it, sometimes, and I feel this also as a UX manager and, you know, being familiar with, with some of the startups, I think designers are being asked to do too much these days. You know, they are being asked to do research. Mm. They are being asked to do code and they are expected to do all of these things equally well and achieve, you know, great success and impact on all those things together. I think it's a lot to ask, yeah. to be honest. And, and it really takes the emphasis on doing one thing really well, right? And I think, you know, no matter how people tell me about and, and try to sell me the concept of unicorns, like I've never met a person like that. Maybe I've met actually a couple, but those are really, really hard to find. And these people might not be super happy with, with their work-life balance either, right? So <laughs> I, th I think you better, I, my, my advice is like, yes, I would say if you want to learn code, I think there's nothing that you shouldn't do. I think it's, it's always worth it. You want to just explore something new, new uh, learn a new skill set that can only bring good things to you on a personal basis, right? It will challenge you and it, it would actually allow you to expand your mind in different ways. But I don't think that's a need. Like no one will hire you expecting that, uh, that skill if you are being hired as a designer, right? So I don't think there's a need on the market for that necessarily. I think it's more of a personal option. Like for example, I did a lot of coding in the past to you know, do some of the projects that I did, but I think no, I'm unable to be as good as coding as, I'm at, as I am in other things. So I, I would rather partner with someone that's really good at coding and I can focus on other things. And through that collaboration, we, we can achieve better uh yeah better projects altogether yeah as i say i think that's a, a great answer because I, I agree i feel like everybody everybody wants to be a unicorn and a lot of people who hire want unicorns and and neither of those things are they're called unicorns for a reason because they they don't exist <laughs> exactly they don't exist <laughs> and i would right i mean and i would i would also <laughs> extend that just just as sort of a, a as an aside that especially in the moment that we're in with all of these visualizations coming out about COVID and, and the pandemic, there's a lot of people creating visualizations who maybe they should not be creating visualizations because they don't know enough about the spread of a disease and public health and epidemiology. And maybe it's just human nature where we kind of think that we know more than we do. And instead we should be asking for help. Um, and we've, this, this theme has come up a bunch of times on, on these discussions and in a podcast I recently did. Um, but I think it's, it's not just on what we expect people to do in their job with the tools, but also what we expect people to sort of publish and put out into the world. There seems to be this expectation of like doing too much and maybe we should be relying on each other a little bit more. Um, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think to be honest, like the whole idea of unicorns or like, the notion of product designers, which has something that a term that has you know occurred in the, the whole startup community, 
be honest, I think it was just a cheap way of, of, of startups to get what they needed for a really low price, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yes, if I need to hire like a researcher, a designer, and a, and, a, and, a, and a software engineer, I would have to pay three times. If I got one person that does all three, you know, right. that's great. So, <laughs> but I don't think that should be the guiding force for, for, you know, any of you to like lead your life through, right? Yeah. Um, how did you to save money, if anything? <laughs> I was I was just thinking I got in trouble for for making this exact case at a conference uh, at one of the academic viz conferences. This was several years ago, where I said, you know, you need to to have a team, right? You need someone who can do the web development, and you need someone who can do the statistics and the data. You need someone who you know uh, can do the design. You need all these all these different pieces, and there are no unicorns. And I got all these computer science graduate students after the talk saying, I can do this, you know, I'm the unicorn. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, because you're in graduate school right now. But like can. what happens when you go to work and you have 500 competing things to do today? You just, it's just not, it's just not a tenuous, you know, it's just not something that's gonna, gonna work for anybody. No, that's a really good, I mean, yeah. at the same time, I think it's definitely useful, like, especially if you're working in a triad like that, you know, we, if you are a designer and you're working, you know, side by side with engineers, uh, and 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 product managers and, and and other roles and researchers and whatnot. It's always good, to, of course, to understand their roles. You know, you don't have yeah. to be an expert in research or an expert in necessarily in software development, but like you need to understand the basics of it so that you know the, the limitations. You know what they struggle with, right? So, I think, but that is to say about everything. You know, that's there's always yeah. a lot of a lot of, a lot of aspects that you know uh, we designers we have to explain what we do so that people understand like. I think engineers and, and researchers also need to explain to designers what they do so that everyone is on the same level playing field. Even internally, I remember doing that. Like every time there's like a new project, a new collaborative project, the best way to start a project is like everyone explaining what they do, what they bring to the table, right? And how to best collaborate with them. That would yeah. just clear the water immediately because now you know what you can rely on that person for, right? And it's, it's much clearer because in, in, instead, there's a lot, again, misunderstandings that people don't really understand what role, what kind of contribution they can do, how to collaborate with them. It's just avoiding a lot of that process for sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, we're basically at the end. So I don't know, do you have any like last words of wisdom for folks that you want to share? Or? Last, I don't know. Um, not really. I just hope everyone is safe. And, uh, yeah. and I'm happy that you're doing this, John. I think it's yeah, really thanks. good and, and I think Francesca before, like I think all of us doing and trying to educate the public on some of these issues, right? I, I think it, it can only bring good things, right? And I think, uh, you know, visual literacy is definitely an issue. And I think we all collectively need to work on it in different ways. It's through, you know, initiatives like this one, through webinars, through whatever educational platforms we can create. Uh, I think it's a really like important call to action for us to all be involved in. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'll just quickly, uh, before we close up, just quickly remind everybody uh, that there are, I don't even know what is it, Wednesday? It's like the longest month ever. Uh, so uh, tomorrow we'll do, um, I don't even remember what time we're at, but tomorrow, uh, let's see, uh, especially for people interested in tools, um, from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern time, uh, Gregor Eich and Lisa Charlotte Rose from Data Wrapper, they're in Berlin. Uh, they run, they are, part of the team on data wrapper. So they'll be here to talk about the tool and, and other stuff. And then Friday afternoon from two to three Eastern time, Enrico Bertini and Marge Stefan are from the data stories podcast. will be here to talk about the stuff that they're working on. And then just as a quick, like uh, 
preview for next week. Um, I have four of the five days all set, but on Wednesday, I'll be doing this on my own and I'll be teaching data viz for kids. So if you have kids, That's awesome. Manuel, you mentioned this about your daughter earlier. So if, if, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to try to do a little virtual data viz uh, class for kids. So all your kid needs or you, doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Uh, they just need a piece of paper and some colored pencils. Um, and we're going to, I'll talk for a little bit and then we'll actually be making some things. So, but it'll all be That's analog. Amazing. Can, can my daughter join as well? Of course, of course. It's totally yeah. open. So yeah. What time is that, John? Um, I, well, you know what? I was just thinking of it and I, I think I'm going to do it at 11 because <laughs> you said 11 a good time. So I think I'll do 11 because I think okay. about kids on the East Coast in San Francisco, they're probably up early anyways. So maybe their parents yes. can say, go be online for an hour. Um, so we'll do yeah. 11 a.m. on Wednesday, and and um, then we can get out to out to Pakistan at least. Um, we'll <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds great. Yeah. Great. is good because it opens appetite for lunch as well. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for uh, for for coming on, Manuel. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. It was great. Um, be sure to check out his books. And um, I think guess if you have other questions, just ping him on Twitter. And if you have any questions for me, ping me on Twitter um, or at the Urban website, wherever, and um, we can share more uh, resources. So um, great. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, and be well. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye, everybody. Thanks, see you, Manuel. Thanks. See you, everyone. Thanks for everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you learned a little something about Manuel's process and about uh, his love of circles and his love of trees. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider sharing it and letting other folks know about the show. Consider writing a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Or if you'd like to support the show financially, please head over to my Patreon page for just a couple of dollars per month. You can help me afford things like audio transcription, audio editing, webcasting, web hosting, all the things that are needed to bring this show to you. So I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.